Pastor Leon and his wife Sheila founded Gospel Tabernacle Church in 1982 in the heart of Lawrence, South Carolina. Since then, the Lord has richly blessed and increased the ministry and family of Gospel Tabernacle Church. Here at Gospel Tabernacle, we believe in the power of the Word of God to change the hearts and lives of believers. Gospel Tabernacle is a family church ministering to the whole family through the charismatic teaching ministry. Today's message will grow your faith and draw you close to the Lord as you open your heart to God's Word and His Spirit. God, for this day that you've given us. We're very mindful, Lord God, of your blessings on our life, and we just thank you, Lord God, that your grace and goodness and mercy surrounds us this evening. And Father God, we just ask you, Lord God, as we look into your word tonight, that you open our minds, our hearts, our spirits, we see the word of the Lord, and Father, just bless us in everything that we do, and it is in the wonderful name of Jesus that we pray. And everybody says amen. amen. And also, I mentioned Greg and uh, Deborah not with us, uh, Caleb's graduating tonight. Uh, at uh, USC for her, I believe it's her bachelor's degree in accounting, I believe is what it is that she's graduating. And so I headed toward being a CPA, which is a certified public accountant. So uh, she, that's in the future as she gets closer to that, but this is a, a big milestone for her tonight. So be in prayer of their family as well, as they're not with us tonight as well. Okay, look toward the book of Acts, chapter six is where we're gonna be looking at. And what we've been doing is studying the person of Luke not necessarily the book of Luke or the book of Acts. However, Luke did in fact write the book of Luke and he did write the book of Acts. And so he gave us a recording of the history of the life of Christ Jesus in the book of Luke. He gave us a history and recording of the uh, Acts of the New Testament church uh, from the book of Acts, uh, all 28 chapters of the book of Acts. And so we're looking there and seeing things that he brought uh, to light for us. And we began looking just a couple weeks ago at the Holy Spirit because Luke talks more about the Holy Spirit uh, in the Gospel of Luke and in certainly in the book of Acts than any of the other writers. Uh, he, it really, he's a medical doctor. When he sees something uh, phenomenal, something supernatural, something happening in people's lives, uh, I guess he's very acute to that, very alert to that. And he's given us a lot of information. And if it wasn't for Luke, uh, we would know very little about the workings of the Holy Spirit. Paul had a revelation of the Holy Spirit of what he has done in us. Luke has a revelation of the Holy Spirit of what he does through us. And so we're seeing some of the astounding things and the way that the Holy Spirit works and moves in your and my heart and lives and in the life of the apostles as we sort of just sort of look through the book of Acts. And so we're sort of continuing that tonight. So look with us into Acts chapter 6. As we're going to look at the top of your page, if you don't have one, you should have a, a pink sheet. Has everybody already gotten one already? Did anybody bring one with them? Did somebody leave them on my desk? I guess either I did or Sheila Faye did. And so, that, she's going to get that. We're pausing for a station identification. We'll be right back. No, we don't do that anymore. We can have the flag come out. Does anybody remember late at night uh, when you'd be watching uh, television? Maybe some of you do. And at, the, uh, at night, the television station would all go off the air. And so at midnight, they'd go off and you'd see this thing look like a record that would come there. Before you'd see that, you'd hear the playing of the national anthem and maybe some jets that flow through the air and some American flags. And then they would sign off for the evening. And there was no more TV until the following morning. Some of us don't remember that, but that, that used to happen as well. 
<laughs> so I guess I'm signed off until we get our sheets, but we're headed out. Sheila is on her way speedily. I, she's coming now. Almost. Almost there. Not yet. Okay. She's on her way. She's rapidly heading this way. Unless she comes back and says, oh, she found them. She found the sheets. Okay. Sheila will be the sheet giver outer tonight. You're getting your pink slip. You ever got a pink slip before? I've got, I've got one before. <laughs> and so getting the pink slip rapidly handed to all the eager scholars as it goes by. And uh, Sheila is very meticulous. She does not work in generalities. She works in specifics. So that's why she's taking her time now as she hands up the last three remaining pink slips. And there goes two appropriately dislodged from each other, letting loose of the static as she makes her way toward the last one now that she's handing out. Rifling through the pages, she has found it, double checking to make sure she's got everybody. She walks back through the back of the room and coming this way just to make sure there's nobody hiding in the kitchen area. She's explored that. There was no one there. She's headed to the front and she has one peeled off for herself at the top. Is that right? May we continue now? She doesn't even hear me anymore, see? Oh, you're, oh, you're okay. <laughs> okay. All right, okay. Let's reset, reset. Here we go. Back cut. All right, start now. Here we go. All right, Acts chapter 6. What the Holy Spirit is doing in the life of the church. Now, the apostles expected all of those who served in the Lord's church to be filled with the Spirit. It was a requirement. For when deacons were needed, the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 6, remember why deacons were needed? Remember we, I think we mentioned this in church Sunday, in our giving scripture, uh, Acts chapter uh, 4, Acts chapter 3 and 4, where it talked about that the apostles had, had land and some had bought and sold this land and given it to the church and the church divided it out. Well, there became a problem because some people said the Grecians are getting more than the Hebrews or the Hebrews getting more than the Grecians and different. So we got to make sure everybody's treated fairly and equitable. And so the apostles said, well, our job is we're preaching the gospel. We're establishing churches. Uh, we're spending our time in prayer and meditation uh, in the word of God and studying the things of God and uh, communing with God for the anointing and presence of God in their lives. And they said, we just can't do all this. And so we need people to help. And so they began to search out what we would call deacons or servants, people who minister to the needs of the people. And as they did, they listed some of their qualifications. And in Acts chapter 6, Scripture tells us um, there, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation. Circle reputation, good reputation. Say, is a good reputation for it? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And so you have to watch how we live our lives because while God is forgiving and his grace and mercy covers our sins, when we repent and ask for forgiveness, sometimes people, uh, they remember the bad about you. They remember the problems that we had in our life. And so for us to be effective in ministry, uh, not only be right with God, but you need a good reputation among the people. And so he said, look out seven people who have good reputation who are full of the Holy Spirit. Write it down, Spirit. Full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. 
And so it's not just a person. Sometimes we look for people to serve on ministry boards and ministry teams of our churches and we'll say, well, this person is good with accounting or this person is good with figures and this person is good in business or this person is good. Maybe so, maybe so. And those things could bring some good qualities to a leadership role in a church. But probably most important, even above that, is that they be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because you get someone that has all kind of talent and abilities, yet they're not in sync and they're not in tune with the church. And they're not in tune with the Lord Jesus Christ and what he wants to do in that local church fellowship, that local body. And they don't, don't allow themselves to be led by the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter what gifts or talents they have. They can be more harm than good in that particular uh, church fellowship and particularly this area of deacon ministry. So notice, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. We've got both going there. Holy Spirit and wisdom. And whom we may appoint over this business. Notice how it was. They said, you look out people. And of these people, bring them to the apostles. The apostles will make an appointment of these people. So it's not really like a lot of churches do today. It's not like a majority vote where you just vote and say, okay, whoever gets the most votes gets it, and that's it. Not really that way. You look them out, and that could be done through a vote. It's okay. But then it's brought before the apostles, and the apostles or their leadership team looks at those that are brought before them and make the decisions on if they're able to serve in this particular ministry or this particular situation. And the requirement... As is today, the requirement in Acts chapter 6 is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Spirit of God. Now, one of the deacons chosen, uh, they chose, his name was Stephen. S-T-E-P-H-E-N. S-T-E-P-H-E-N. Not that you don't know how to spell it, but sometimes we spell it different ways, don't we? So this is Stephen, a man full of faith. And notice he's also full of the Holy Spirit. Circle Holy Spirit again. That's a qualification for Stephen. He must be full of faith. He must be full of the Holy Spirit. And so, as he is just one of these deacon ministries that come forth, there's like seven chosen, but he is one of those. Now, when we follow it just a little bit more, it was the same Stephen who, empowered by the Holy Spirit, Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders. Wonders and signs, S-I-G-N-S, signs among the people. And so, how did he do the wonders and the signs? He didn't do the wonders and signs with wisdom. He didn't do the wonders and signs uh, with his natural gifts and natural abilities. The wonders and signs came because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And so, the Holy Spirit, there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so, when you are filled with the Holy Spirit of God in your life, you have access to the supernatural, access to the ministry things of God, and access to wonders and signs, or sometimes the way we like to say it, or signs and wonders sort of flows a little bit better for us, but it basically says wonders and signs here. Among the people that he was doing. All this came because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, if we look a little bit further, the Jewish people did not accept Stephen at this time. The Jews, there's going to be a lot of issues we'll see in the book of Acts concerning this, but they didn't accept Stephen, and they stoned him. Imagine that stone. In fact, turn to where we're looking. I think we're looking at Acts chapter 7. When we look there, you can see that when he begins to preach and teach to the Jewish people, he talks to them about what happened in the life of Joseph. He talks to them about what happens in Moses and how we all got carried down to uh, Egypt. And Joseph there cared for us. And then he passed away and others came up. And then Moses led us out of that bondage. And he really just gives them a whole history of the Jewish nation and how they got to where they were at. And he begins to tell them that Israel 
uh, was rebelling against God. And they were rebelling against the prophet, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, that was raised up among them that Moses prophesied about. And he begins to talk to them about all these kind of things. And it doesn't make them happy, but it makes them mad. It makes them angry. And Stephen, as he ministers to them, uh, we see that I've got written down here, he being full of the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit, if you look at Acts 7, verse 55, he was full of the Holy Spirit, preaching, teaching unto them. And uh, gazed into heaven, he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, look, I see I see the Son of Man, the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What is happening is this, is they are so angry at the gospel that Stephen is preaching. They're so mad at him for telling them the history of how God chose them as a people, but yet they rebelled against God, and they walked away from the things of God. He is, they are so mad and angry that they begin to actually begin to gnash him with their teeth in verse 54 uh, Acts 7 tells us that, that they were cut to their heart. I mean, the word went right to their heart. They knew they were wrong. And they began to gnash at him and bite at him with their very teeth. There are some people that do not want to hear the truth of the gospel. And they do not want to hear the word of God. We have a lot of people like that in America today. And literally, uh, if it were possible, would take the very lives and kill those people. If they're able to do so, get away with it. Kill those people who tell them the truth about their sin and about the fact that we all stand before God to be judged and Jesus Christ is the only way that we can escape that judgment through His grace and mercy and forgiveness as we repent of our sins. People don't want to hear that. They didn't want to hear it. And because of this, they're going to kill Stephen. They're going to kill him. Acts chapter 7, verse 55, says, when he was full of the Holy Spirit, looks into heaven, he sees the glory of God. Notice this, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look at verse 55 and tell me once again, do you see... Three members of the Trinity of the Godhead. He being full of what? The Holy Spirit. Where's the Holy Spirit? In Stephen on this earth. Full of the Holy Spirit. Gaze into heaven. Now into heaven he sees the glory of God. God the Father. Beside of God the Father in heaven he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. I've heard a lot of people talk about this, and I guess I happen to agree with this. When you see Jesus standing beside of God the Father, we have our understanding that there's a throne of God that's in heaven, and to the right-hand side of God's throne is, of course, Jesus Christ uh, and His throne. Uh, and, of course, they do all kinds of things throughout their vast universe. I'm not trying to say that they just sit there for the last 2,000 years. Uh, they got many things they got going on for sure that we know about some and some that we don't. But we do know this. When he sees God the Father, that Jesus is standing. He has gotten with his death. He has gotten the attention of Christ Jesus. And Jesus is now standing about to welcome him into the portals of heaven when he breathes his last breath here on planet earth. And so don't think that you're not going to be persecuted without getting God's attention. Don't think that we can make a sacrifice or if we can do something for the glory of God and it does not get God's attention. It does. And no doubt in our lives, in your lives, Jesus has been standing and looking at the circumstance situation that we found ourselves in, and he cares. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews, don't think that he can't be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but he was tempted like all of us was, but he was without sin. He is touched by our infirmities, our weaknesses, our problems, our situation, and here we see it definitely. He's standing up, 
as Stephen is about to lose his life on planet Earth for the gospel's sake. But now notice what Stephen says, verse 56, Look, I see heavens open, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I see the heavens open, write it down, God standing at the right hand of God. And this just shows us what we already knew. In the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, 54 times, you can see the fact that God can be seen. God does have an image, and he has an image, and that image can be seen, has been seen 54 times by the natural man that we see in Scripture. And so here, Stephen is telling us too, I see the Son of Man. Where is he standing? The side of God. I see God the Father in the heavens. I see uh, the Son of Man standing by. Now, he did see God in his glory here. And we know that people cannot see God in his glory and live, in all his glory and live. And, of course, Stephen dies just right after that. He really does. And so there's no dishonor to the Scripture that teaches that, as we see, that Stephen had a revelation of God when he lost his life for the gospel's sake. But what empowered him to do that? He did signs. He did wonders. He preached the gospel that affected people's lives, got them so angry. Uh, maybe some repented, I'm sure, but most did not. And they were so angry at him, they wanted to kill him in any way that they could, and even to the point of gnashing and eating him alive, if they could uh, do that uh, with their teeth, Scripture tells us. And so he dies. But how does he do that? He has power to live, he has power to do signs and wonders, and he has power to die, all given to him by the Holy Spirit. It's an empowering gift of the Holy Ghost in his life. That was a requirement for someone to do the work of the ministry as we see in the very few first few chapters of the book of Acts. Now, going on just a little bit, let's look at another one that they chose. In Acts 6 and 5, Scripture says, in addition, another deacon was chosen, and they chose Philip. P-H-I-L-I-P. Second one. So we see Stephen, and now we see Philip. All part of that original seven. Now, Philip goes down to the city of Samaria, or up to the city of Samaria, as we could look at. I don't have a map like that big. But he goes to the city of Samaria and he preached Christ to them. And, and notice one more time, as we overemphasize this fact, Philip and Stephen, while being filled with the Holy Spirit, are not preaching themselves. They're not really preaching the Apostle Paul. Although Paul's a great man of God. They're not preaching him. Uh, they're not preaching John the Baptist. And we'll see a reference to him later on, maybe tonight. They're not preaching John the Baptist. He's a great man too. And there's a lot that we can look at and see the greatness of, of people, but they're not preaching people. They're not preaching themselves. They're preaching Christ. And even so that we have the Holy Spirit in our life, and He baptizes us, He fills us with power, He fills us with work to the ministry, that ministry is always going to point to Jesus. It's always going to point. We are witnesses. In whatever shape, form, or fashion that takes, we are witnesses unto Christ, and that's the power of the Holy Spirit that is evidence in their lives. Now, what are the results? When he preaches Christ to them, Scripture tells us the multitudes heeded the things spoken by Philip. They heard, but they observed them and agreed with. They heeded. They paid attention to with the intent of obeying. They heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles. Hearing and seeing miracles. Somebody said, do we need miracles today? Absolutely. Somebody said, well, we need the miracles then to establish the covenant, establish this, establish that. Well, true. But we also need miracles today to establish the same thing in the earth today. And it's the one thing that separates us um, from just all of the religions of the world. 
there was a great evangelist by the name of T.L. Osborne, Tommy Lee Osborne. And uh, T.L. Osborne uh, lived, I'm guessing, if I had, don't quote me on it, I'm guessing he's probably born about 19, oh, 1904, 5, 6, 7, somewhere along in there. And uh, he began preaching the gospel. He was in the Foursquare Church uh, in, out in Washington State. And uh, he was preaching the gospel and doing the best that he knew how to do, he and his wife Daisy. And uh, he had it in his heart and life to become a missionary. And so he left America, went to India, and stayed there seven years. And the seven years he was in India, he's talked about how he argued with the people. They would say, you know, he said, well, the Bible is the word of God. And he said, they would say to him, well, the Mohammedans would say, well, the Quran is the word of God. And say, your book says this, my book says this. What makes your book any better than my book? And he said he was so discouraged because how do you argue with somebody? I mean, we think sometimes in Christianity, you know, you got two people that have the Bible, and we still argue, I guess, but you got a couple of people who got the same Bible, and we argue about what it says this, or to say that, or is this true, or is that true? And, uh, and, you know, within Christianity, you get arguments. But here, this is Christianity versus uh, the Mohammedans at that point that he was talking to. And uh, it was just, they said, our book's the best. T.L. said, no, my book's the best. And then what did they say? Well, our book's the best. T.L. said, well, mine's the best. And he said he came to a standstill. So defeated. I mean, how do you convince somebody that does not even believe that the Bible is the Word of God? That was his problem. And so after seven years of he and his wife ministry, he said, I'm just quitting. I'm going back home. And he left there and he came back to America. And when he came back to America, so frustrated, and we'll see some of this here too, uh, so frustrated in his life that he began to fast and pray and seek the Lord for, you know, God to do something in his life. And he became exposed to a very major ministry in California. And uh, when he did, uh, the Lord just spoke to his heart for a long extended time of prayer and fasting. He did that. And he became empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the first thing he wanted to do was go back. And he did. And he went back to India. And he went back to over 100 other nations of the world. You can't go in a nation today and not find a church there that doesn't trace their beginnings back to the ministry of T.L. Osborne. Because he believed in what's called native ministry. That when you go into a place, you don't make an American church and stick it there and put an American preacher in there and let all the people come. No, he believed in a native church. He let them make their church in their own civilization, their own place where they live, and they sort of worship the way they worship, preach like they preach, you know, eat what they eat, dress like they eat. It's theirs, but you give them the gospel, of course. And he set up many, many churches like that. And uh, when he went back to India, the next time he went back, he told them that Jesus was alive. And that's something they could not say about any of their religions. And then they said, we'll prove it. And he did. He said, if, if Jesus is alive, he's going to do the same things today that he did when he was alive. And when he was alive, he healed the sick and he raised the dead. Till began to preach that message and had miracles upon miracles upon miracles in his life and his ministry and built thousands and thousands and thousands of churches all over the world and had a great ministry. And it all came down to the fact that the Holy Spirit was witnessing Jesus in T.L.'s life. That was the difference. Before, he didn't have that. But when he went back, he did. And so it's the biggest difference in the world not to be able to just stand and try to do something in our own power, but try to do something the best that we can do, of course, but then lead at that and let the Holy Spirit empower us and do what only he can do. That's those signs and wonders that you're seeing Philip doing and you're seeing Stephen doing. And so 
Philip hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. Notice this, for unclean spirits, wicked devils and demons, unclean demons, you don't put that way, just terrible demonic spirits that take over the lives of people, crying with a loud voice, came out of many that were possessed, possessed with the devil, your soul, your spirit, your body. A Christian, as a spirit, will have Christ Jesus in his spirit. A Christian can never be possessed of the devil in his spirit. He can have uh, the devil oppressing him in his body. The devil can even oppress him against his soul and mental abilities, but not in the spirit. Two persons of evil and righteous can't dwell in the same heart spirit. Jesus taught us that. But here, these people, not Christians, of course, had unclean spirits in them, and they were literally possessed. And so whatever spirit had taken them over, that spirit was manifesting his life in them, whatever kind of spirit it was. And they were in control or being controlled by this spirit. Well, when Philip is preaching Christ under the power of the Holy Spirit in his life, these devils and demons are coming out of people. They can't stay in the presence of this anointed and Holy Spirit-filled man of God that is preaching the gospel. Many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. Miracles were taking place. And then what happens? If you have people delivered of the devil, miracles of healings taking place, of course there was great joy in that city. Everybody's happy. I mean, talk about everybody be happy over yonder, everybody happy right here. And they are happy. They're excited. Imagine that if you saw somebody that just been possessed of the devil and their lives completely ruined by the things the devil wanted to do in their lives and was doing in their lives. And imagine when you see your relative or a friend or loved one uh, set free and no longer bound by those things anymore. Uh, joy, great joy in that city. All this is coming. Luke is seeing this happen. And it's taking place because the Holy Spirit is in the lives of believers. And this is what he's doing. This is what's happening. Well, going down a little bit, the same Philip also led his family into the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But the scripture said that Paul entered to his house of Philip the Evangelist who was one of the seven, same, same group. Now this man had four, one, two, three, four, four virgin daughters who prophesied. Four daughters who spoke the words of God with boldness. Who not just spoke the word of God, prophesying the word of God in this context that you're looking at, it was when the Holy Spirit would come upon them and they would speak the words of God as thus saith the Lord God and speak out prophecies of God. And this is Philip's household. It's his, four of his daughters are doing this. And so the Holy Spirit just hasn't affected him. It's affected his whole house. And God is doing something very special in the New Testament church then as he is now for all of us that will receive it. If we look back, another we can see in the book of Acts. All this is in the book of Acts. Barnabas, the relative of Mark, was also a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Barnabas. All the major characters you're going to read about in the book of Acts are going to be people who are filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Ghost. Barnabas, also, who went on the first missionary journey with Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit and faith. Now, in Samaria, revival where Philip was at, held the apostles, Peter and John come down with a special ministry. Remember, Philip has gone down and has preached Christ to them. Well, Peter and John have a very special ministry that God has granted unto them. Because when they come down, they prayed. Pray for all these believers that have received Christ 
under the preaching of Philip, for them that they might receive, notice that word receive, the Holy Spirit. They have a very special anointing of God to pray for people to receive the Holy Spirit. And notice it says, receive the Holy Spirit. It's not like saying, I hope the Holy Spirit falls on me tonight. I, I want the Holy Ghost in my life. Will he just come to me? It's not that the Holy Spirit is already here. It's just like salvation. We receive the Holy Spirit by faith like we receive salvation by faith. It's all the same way. It's not waiting for something to happen. It's already happened. It's up to you and me to receive him. And so, he received the Holy Spirit. They have this gift that when they lay hands on believers... The presence of the Holy Spirit falls on them and it becomes very easy for them to receive the Holy Spirit. These believers had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They've just been, you know, believers. And they've been baptized, but that's it. That's all that's happened to them. But as yet, Holy Spirit, He has fallen upon none of them. Holy Spirit hasn't come up. They're, they're saved. They're on their way to heaven. God's recreated their heart and their spirit, but they just have not been empowered yet by the Holy Spirit. And so Peter and John come down to pray for them to be in power. And so it was, when they laid hands on them, they received the Holy Spirit. So when you read about laying on of hands, there's this thing, doctrine, many people talk about transference of spirits, that kind of thing, and we're good and bad. You don't want anybody praying for you, putting their hand on you if they're not of God, because you don't get what they got. Things can move that direction. You submit yourself to someone else. But when people are Christians, and people, uh, and the Bible teaches us to lay hands on one another that we might be healed, Scripture says. And here, Peter and John had this gift. They lay hands on someone. The Holy Spirit come into their life. A tremendous anointing of God that they have for this to happen in the early church. And so this is taking place. Well, what happens is somebody takes notice of this. In the same revival, a sorcerer, okay, a sorcerer. Now, when you think about a sorcerer, think about it like this. A Christian is a person who has said yes to Jesus and Jesus has come into their life and saved their soul, has forgiven them of their sins, has washed them with the blood of Christ Jesus, made them born again, and made them the righteous of God. That same Christian who has been saved can then say, or it could have happened at the same time, it doesn't matter, but it certainly could happen after as well, could then say, Holy Spirit, now empower me. Fill me. Baptize me. And they have to learn themselves to say yes to the Holy Spirit so the Holy Spirit can fill our lives. Okay? That's as a Christian. The same thing works on the other side. You've got some people who really are devoted to the devil. They have given, for another way of saying it, they have given their life to the devil himself. They want the devil to fill them. They want the devil to use them. They want the devil's ungodly anointing on the wicked side to fill their life. One expression of that is a sorcerer. A sorcerer. A person who practices the magical arts in a way to hurt or harm or perform spells or to get what they want and they, or to deceive. They practice that art as called sorcery. So this sorcerer, he knows how that he's doing things he can't do that the devil's doing through him. When he sees Peter and John putting his hands on these Christians and the Holy Spirit's coming to life, 
He said, I see a power that's at work there. And I want that power to lay hands on someone to see them feel the Holy Spirit. Now, also, we're going to find out that the sorcerer, Simon Sorcerer, he has gotten saved and come to God and left that part of his life. But in that part of his life, he knew how to recognize spirits outside of him, even though they were wicked spirits. But he, he, he had gotten saved. Well, let's, let's just read. Let's read. In the same revival, sorcerer who previously practiced sorcery, okay, he practiced it. I don't know what you've seen. Unfortunately, in my life, I've had family members that did that, and I've seen some stuff I wish I had never saw, and uh, didn't really participate, but it was around it when it was happening, uh, of some stuff like this years and years ago. Practice sorcery in the city. This Simon himself also believed. See, he came to Jesus himself. He left his sorcery. Left all that. But just because he left it doesn't mean he didn't know what he did and how he did and what took place. But he did leave it. He did. He genuinely received Jesus. He believed. And he was baptized. You get baptized in water? And he continued with Philip. He's going to hang around Philip because now he sees something on the righteous side or the good side of God that there's a power there and just like he was attracted on the bad side of things to that power of sorcery now he's attracted this way the same motivation but one was turned toward ungodliness now this motivation turned toward godliness it's turned the right way now and so he was amazed seeing the miracles and signs I mean he saw something in Philip's life that was greater than what was working in his life and he saw Philip doing things that, that he couldn't do, but wanted to do, but couldn't. And he sees Philip doing them. And that's, that's one thing about you and I as the church of Jesus Christ. You say, when will the world come to Jesus? Well, when the world sees that Christians got more than the world got, they'll come to, come to Christ. And it's up to you and I to live our lives in such a way that we show forth the love, the grace, the mercy, and the victory, and the love, and the joy, and the power of God in our lives that people will see you and me and say, well, that's what I want. But if we live a defeated life and we just barely can halfway stay saved every week or whatever, and that kind of stuff, they ain't going to want what we got. And so it's up to us to really be into the things of God, to have a profession of our faith, a confession of the things of God, and just walk and live by faith and walk and live by God's power and grace and mercy and have the joy of God in our life that's overflowing, that people look at us and say, hey, I want that too. That's what I want. That's what Simon Sorcerer said when he saw Philip. I want that. What, look what happens. And so, he saw the miracles that were done. Well, later, when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, remember Peter and John came and lay on hands? When he saw that, that the Holy Spirit was given, when he saw the Holy Spirit come into people's lives, when their hands was laid on them, he offered them money. Now, he's offering this money to Peter and John, and here's what he wants. Give me this power. He doesn't want the power of the Holy Spirit. That's not what he's asking for. Give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay my hands, they'll receive the Holy Spirit. In other words, I want to have the power that Peter and John had that when they lay hands on somebody, that person received the Holy Spirit. So I'm, I want that too. That's what I want. I want to lay hands on people and they receive the Holy Spirit. Okay? That in itself, not a bad thing. There's something bad connected to it though. But that in itself, that desire to have God use him, it's not a bad thing. The problem is, he thinks he can buy it. 
And he thinks money is the direction that he needs to go in to, to receive that. Peter, however, rebuked him. Circle rebuked him if you want to. He rebuked him saying, in other words, he didn't just say you wrong. He said you bad wrong. He rebuked him. He said, your money perish with you. You know, it will perish with you, you and your money both. That's what you think. Because you thought that the gift of God, okay, not the gift of the Holy Ghost, not the gift of the baptism of the Holy Ghost, not the nine gifts of the Spirit, not the nine fruit of the Spirit, but the gift of God. What is the gift of God? That gift that Peter and John have that when they put hands on somebody, they receive the Holy Spirit. That's a gift. That's why when you look at Scripture, you see gifts, S, of healing. There's more kinds of healing that we need. Some people are gifted to pray for people in certain areas of healing, but not in other areas. And so there's gifts of healings, more than one kind. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, 14, those, all those chapters, there are diversities of gifts. Same Lord, same Holy Spirit, but they work different ways, and they're administered different ways. And so different people have different ways in administration the Holy Spirit uses them. Peter and John are being used to lay hands on people and they receive the Holy Spirit. That's what he wants. He wants that ability that in his hand, when he puts it on somebody, they get the Holy Spirit. He's not trying to buy the Holy Ghost. He, he's not trying to do anything. He's trying to buy the ability to lay hands on somebody and they get the Holy Spirit. That's what he's trying to buy. And so he does that. Peter rebukes him and says, your money's going to perish with you. You offered money for it. I understand that. But no, we don't want your money. Now, notice that. Isn't that different? My goodness. A lot of preachers today would took the money and ran. I guess. I don't know. I mean, not even God, godly preachers anyway. But anyway, Peter said, your money perish with you because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You, you cannot buy with money. Let me put it this way. You cannot buy with money the things of God. You, you want to write a check for 10000 and lay it down and say, here, if this 10000 get me healed. $10,000 won't get you healed. It won't. You, you, can, you can do all kinds of things like that. At the same time, recognize there is a cost. There is a cost to the things of God. You can't just live any old kind of way you want to live and live like the devil and then expect God to bless you, expect God to do wonderful things in your life, and there you are not even living for God. No, that's not right. That's not the case. What does it cost you? It costs you more than money. It costs you everything you got. It costs you all that you are. It costs you, like Jesus said, that you got to love me with all your soul, your mind, and your body, and everything about you. You don't hold nothing back. God can't be second place in your life. It literally costs everything you got for you to serve God. Serve Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and body, Scripture teaches us. And so, yeah, there's that cost, but there ain't nothing that you can buy from God with money or just because you gave, you know, this much in the offering or that much. It doesn't matter. Give what the Lord told you to give. Be faithful in your giving. Be a good steward, of course. But it's not that money that's going to buy anything from God. And Simon's going to learn that. Peter's telling him right quick, you can't buy the things of God. Money won't do it. You cannot buy the things of God. We're going to see, as we keep looking at this, that fasting and prayer directly have a great effect on receiving the things of God. And that's not money. It is something you do. It is a commitment. It is an offering that you make of yourself and a sacrifice that you give of your life through fasting and prayer. God sees that, recognizes that, and he honors that. We'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll see that in Scripture right here. We're, we're about to see a little bit more of that. 
but but we don't do anything with money. It's it's not if you know you can have a wicked heart and have all kind of money and just gonna buy things. No, you can't do that. Can't do that at all. Notice what he tells him. Peter told him, "Repent, repent. You better think. Repent means change your mind. You better stop thinking that way. You need to change your mind on that subject. Repent of this. Your it is wicked to think that you can buy things from God. It is wickedness for you to do that." That's the wrong attitude, the wrong thought. I mean, what could you give God in the way of money anyway? God's got all the money there's ever been. All the money there ever been. He don't need your money or my money whatsoever. My money would not impress God. Your money would not. All of our money all put together would make an impression on God. Money doesn't do that. Now, understand this. At the same time, if I say to the Lord that I want to do this or do that, uh, like, for example, when Grandma Shekin comes a, a few weeks ago and he comes by and uh, he says, uh, okay, uh, we want to build a house church in Cambodia. Well, some people gave some money. Did they impress God? Mm -hmm, it did. God would honor our giving. Certainly he would. Yeah. Or if God touched our heart and said, give some money, we said, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to keep my money. Then, then you sin. You did wrong by holding on to something that the Lord told you to give and share. But it's not like a thing that where we buy somewhere our money and we can just live any kind of way and hand God money and think we can get everything that God's got and different things. We had uh, this last uh, week as well, you know, we're finishing our uh, uh, play area that we did and a very good, dear uh, pastor friend of mine, uh, he and his church at, uh, uh, I guess I name, but at, at Northside Baptist Church here in Lawrence, uh, we put up a play area as well. So he's calling and talking to me about it, different things. I was talking to him and said, yeah, I found out about it, and he told me about a, uh, someone that's going to double their giving uh, through a, a pledge that they had. Uh, through, a, a, In fact, it was a missionary organization. And he told me about it, and I said, well, maybe we can do that too. So I mentioned to our board Sunday morning, and our board come along and uh, decided, well, we can, we can help him uh, do a little bit there with his play area. And uh, after that, uh, somebody else said, well, I might do a little bit more too. So we just took some with the board, took a little bit more, could it And we're able to give him, uh, just yesterday, gave him a $1,000 check. Uh, to go on their play set. And uh, he told me, he said, uh, someone asked him and said, so confused. He said, someone asked him, why are they doing this? And he said, churches just don't give money to other churches. Now, that might be common out there, but I can show you through our history about 70 different churches that we've given to over the last 38 years. And we do, we give us. Why? I mean, really, we, don't, we really didn't give any money to a, another church. Because all of us are just one church. I mean, we might meet in different locations, might worship a little bit different, do things a little bit different, but still, if we all call the name of Christ Jesus, there's just one church. There's just one, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ Church. Well, we're honored to give and honored to share. Will God bless us for that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely he'll bless us for it. Absolutely he will bless us for it. But do we do that in such a way that we want to try to buy something from God, purchase something? No, not at all. And if that's our motivation, that, that we think we don't have to you know, live faithfully before God and not honor God in the rest of our life, but we're going to buy our way out. You can't buy your way out. You can't. you got to be, be honest and sincere in all that you do. And so the sorcerer is learning that, Peter, you can't buy the things of God with money. But remember, it costs you everything you got. If I can sort of say that both ways, I hope you understand it. Okay, Peter tells him, repent, change your mind. Your heart may be forgiven. That's what he said. And notice what he said. Evidently, Simon does repent because Scripture says, Then Simon answered and said, Pray. Pray to the Lord for me. Pray for me now. I'm not, I don't want that. Forget about that gift I asked you for. I wanted to buy. Forget that. Pray for me. Pray for me 
that none of the things that you've spoken of against me will come on me. I, I, I don't want to be in a gall of bitterness as the other scripture we didn't include in the outline that it talks about and everything going on. I don't want to be like that. I want to be lost out with God. No, pray for me. Mm-mm, mm-mm, I'm sorry. Pray for me. And that's what he does. And so evidently Simon gets back on track with God there and, and has a little bump in the road. Big bump in the road, really, but has a bump in the road, but gets right back on track. All right, turn the page. Luke also, also records the salvation and filling of Paul, Paul the Apostle. Well, why was it that Paul the Apostle had such a, a great anointing and power in his life? Uh, do we not copy some on the backs? Might have some backside there. Oh. Okay. Luke also records the salvation and filling of Paul the Apostle with the Holy Spirit. Saul was arrested by the Lord Jesus as he journeyed and came near Damascus. Remember who Paul was before he was the Apostle Paul we all know and love and read his writings. He was called the man Saul. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee, of course. And uh, he just loved the Jewish religion. He hated anything against the Jewish religion, anything against the Jewish temple that he thought it was. It really wasn't. But he hated that. And so when he heard about Christ Jesus and people following Christ Jesus, and Jesus telling them that you don't have to worship in this temple, but you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, Paul hates that, or what we call Saul at that time. He hates that. He's against it. In fact, he's got everything going to where he goes and gets papers from different people, the Roman government, Jewish synagogues, gets it all together, finds all these Christians, and wherever they're at, they're either going to repent, get cast into jail, or they're going to get killed. In fact, we just read, I believe it was Stephen that we had read, when Stephen died, Scripture tells us there was a man that was standing at Stephen's feet holding his coat as a witness against him, and that man was Paul the Apostle, or Saul. And so responsible for that death, because he, he, he's trying to promote Old Testament Hebrew religion, not Christianity. He hates Christ Jesus. He hates Christianity. He will fight in every way he can to destroy it, even if it means killing people. And so when he's on his way to do some of this, either to arrest someone, have him killed, whatever the case may be, something happens to him. And so Luke records that event of the salvation and the filling of Paul with the Holy Spirit. Saul was arrested by the Lord Jesus as he journeyed and came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Imagine on your way to do this, his mind, righteousness, our understanding, wickedness, but he's on his way to do this, and a great light shines around from heaven. And it strikes him down on the road to Damascus. I mean, stops him in his footprints. Saul was told by the Lord in this line, Arise, go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. In other words, here's the event. Here's what's going to happen. But you go to the city, and in the city, you're going to be told what to do. There's a special apostle there that's going to see you, and he's going to tell you what to do. Well, as Saul arose to obey, he discovered he was blind. He couldn't see. Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were open, he saw no one. He couldn't see, even though his eyes were open, he could see a thing. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Now, isn't it just a little thing that lets you think about some things? When he went to the island of Cyprus, he and Barnabas, and at that time, uh, was it Mark that was with him? And they met a sorcerer there that was trying to pervert the gospel on the island of Cyprus. And one of the things Paul did was called blindness down because Paul knew that blindness would stop you in your tracks and he used the power of God to do that 
he also was affected by the same thing by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That happened to him. Well, for the next three days, you're going to see it. He was three days without sight. Can't see for three days. And neither ate nor drank. What do you call it when you don't eat or you drink? Don't drink. We call it a fast. So for the next three days, he is fasting. And in the only way he knows how now, praying, talking to this God that has struck him down in Damascus. Fasting and praying. Now recognize it's been three days. Most of the time they tell us that, uh, you know, you can go a long time without food. Once your body converts over and starts eating the fat off your body, you can go as long as you've got fat on your body to go. I mean, for, it's, it's not hard for us to go 30, 40 days, a 40-day fast like the Bible talks about. Even some people go longer than that, depending on how much you get fat. Once your body turns over, it happens somewhere between day 7 and day 10. And once your body converts over uh, to eating fat off of you rather than fat out of your stomach, once it does that, you're still eating, you're eating again. You start gaining strength. I've seen evangelists sometimes say, I'm getting so weak, I don't know what I'm going to do. All they're doing is saying they fasted less than seven days. That's all they're saying when they say something like that. But because once your body converts over, you start getting strong back in the end because you're eating that great fat resort reserves and stores that you placed on your body just for that purpose. And it's good quality food for you that you can eat once your body converts over. But water, you, know, you can't go more than three days without drinking water. I mean, you've you got to get some water quick. And so the Bible doesn't teach us to fast and pray with no water for any extended period after three days. Never, never should he think. You can injure yourself uh, very much if you do not intake water in your body. Several years ago, I was intrigued to watch a sad story. I believe her name was it Sherry Shavo. Uh, this was this lady in Florida, a young lady. And uh, parents wanting to disconnect her and others were not. And there was this big debate. And so they just cut off all sources of nutrition to her. All food, all water, everything. I think she lived about 53 days. But she did have IV drip going to keep water. But other than that, she would have been gone a long time before that. But, but still, when you see that, recognize in the Bible, Moses went to the top of Mount Sinai, received the law, and he was there 40 days and 40 nights. And while he was there, he didn't even drink anything. But remember, when you say, well, Moses didn't eat or drink anything. Yeah, he didn't, you're right. But he was in the presence of God, talking to him face to face. And came back down with the law of God that God had written with his very finger. That was a supernatural fast. It was so supernatural that when Moses comes down from the Mount Sinai, after 40 days, and he sees the people that are sinning, and that kind of thing, he sees all this going on, he gets mad and he breaks the Ten Commandments. Like he's been the first person that broke all Ten Commandments at one time. But he broke all Ten Commandments. And then he has to go back up to the mountain. He goes right back up. Still hadn't eaten. And stays another 40 days. This time God makes him write the commandments that he broke the first time. And he has to write them this time. Repeat them the same thing that God had. And then he comes back down. So Moses went a 40-day fast. Waited a few hours. Went back and did another 40-day fast. The longest fast on record. If you want to call it that. Because it's a supernatural fast. And it really was. Super. A second one. That was a 40-day fast by Moses. There was a second one by a man named Elijah. Scripture teaches us that Elijah, he, I don't know if he was a, a full fast or not, but it was 40 days for sure. But the scripture says that he rose up to eat and an angel had cooked and baked bread there for him, angel food from heaven, and he eats it. And the Bible says he went in the strength of that food for 40 days. So I've argued with myself about this a long time. 
Did he really fast 40 days without anything? Or if he went in the strength of that food, as the Bible says, was that food just so nutritious it lasted 40 days? I don't know. It was angel food. It wasn't food that human beings eat, so I don't know. But anyway, most Bible dictionaries will say that's your second 40-day fast in Scripture. A third 40-day fast that you find in Scripture is by Jesus Christ. And we recognize that in Matthew chapter 4, where it talks about him fasting for 40 days. And the Bible says, and afterward, A-F-T, afterward, after the 40 days, he hungered. You would be hungry at first, and, and you work your way through those systems the first three days, your stomach gets you, and your head gets you, and everything else. Second uh, set of three days, and usually just your, your head, stomach sort of lets up on you a little bit. And, if, and right after that is a strength and weakness now. But right after about seven days or ten days, then your strength begins to return and go. And then as long as you've got fat on your body, you, you keep on going and you won't be hungry. But when you had to eat up all the fat off your body, then hunger returns. And that's the hunger that's going to kill you if you don't get something to eat. Most of us have never really had hunger pains. <laughs> we say we hunger, but we, we really probably not really hungry. We haven't had hunger pains, P-A-N-G-S. We haven't had that. But Christ did. And he went 40 days and 40 nights, and afterward, the Bible said he hungered. His hunger returned on him. Three 40-day fast in the Bible. Here, what we see Paul doing is fasting three days and three nights. We'll, we'll see numbers of those in scriptures. We see seven-day fasts in scriptures. We see Paul fasting again for 21 days on a ship. That we, see. we see Daniel fasting for 21 days. We see other people in scripture we see in the time of Ruth, when she calls people to fast. I believe that was a three-day fast. And so there's a lot of fasts that are mentioned in scripture, but that's definitely a key. They're having the Holy Spirit move in your life. Now, you, you'll see that connection, fasting, prayer, power of the Holy Spirit. There's that connection that you see in the Bible. So, let, let me get to right where we're at. Okay. And so, look what happened. Had nothing to eat, nothing to drink for three days. Meanwhile, while this is going on, the Lord told a disciple named Ananias, Arise and go to a street called Straight. I want you to notice something about Ananias. As we look at Luke pulling out what the Holy Spirit's doing, not what he's done in us. We can talk a little bit about that. But he's talking a lot about what the Holy Spirit does through us. Ananias now told him but the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit told him the name of the street. It's Straight Street. That's where he's at. He tells him, Inquire at the house of Judas. There's a house on Straight Street that Judas lives at. Go there. When you go there, ask them and call for somebody named Saul. Notice that. Of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. Look what all the Holy Spirit has told Ananias. He has told him what street to go to. Who lives at the house on that street? Who's at the house he's supposed to call for? And what the guy at the house named Saul is doing while he's there, he's praying. And so what you just saw is one of the nine gifts of the Spirit called words of knowledge. He knows something that there ain't no way for him to know other than God has told him. And God hasn't just told him a bunch of generalities. Oh, I just see you're having a hard time or something like that. It's not that he's told him definite, specifics. they're praying I mean, it is definite. It is right to the point. That's what you see when you see real manifestations of the Holy Spirit, and in this case, a word of knowledge. He also tells him a little more. Ananias is fearful at first because he's heard Saul kills everybody, and he sure don't want to get around him. And so when he heard that, God says to him, go, he's chosen. He also tells him about his future. He's a chosen vessel of mine, 
to hear, bear my name before the Gentiles, kings in Israel, and I will show him how many things he must suffer. He's chosen of God. What's he chosen for? A lot of us want to be chosen of God, don't we? We want to be chosen. When we chosen like Paul, what's he chosen for? He's chosen to suffer. That's what it is. He's going to have a ministry and it ain't going to be fun. He's going to have a, have a ministry and everybody's going to criticize him, lie on him, cheat on him, steal on him, uh, rock him to death, beat him, whip him, uh, finally kill him is what's going to happen. That's the ministry that he's chosen for. That's definitely a ministry of suffering. Then, when Ananias arrives at the home of Saul, he lays his hands on him and says, notice how he talks to him now, Brother Saul. He went, you know, he's thinking this guy's going to kill me. He certainly wasn't your brother then. But now that the Holy Spirit's told him what's going to happen to Saul about his life and his future and those kind of things, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you. See, he already knows that. Look at all that stuff he knows. The Lord Jesus appeared to you, sent me. He knows what God told him to do, that you may read. And be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's going to get his sight back. Filled with the Holy Spirit. It is this infilling with the Holy Spirit that changes Saul from, from being Saul to Paul to being empowered and being able to do the things he does. Imagine, imagine the Apostle Paul filled with the Holy Spirit is now going to write 14 books of the New Testament. 27 books in all. So he's writing over half of the New Testament from one man. Filled with the Holy Spirit. This same Apostle Paul will heal the sick, will raise the dead, will have revelation that nobody else has. This same Apostle Paul filled with the Holy Spirit will know things about the new creation, about being born again, that the Apostles, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who wrote the history of the Lord Jesus Christ, and some lived with Him, worked with Him, walked with Him, slept with Him, ate with Him, was there. They didn't even know and Paul gets all of this by revelation of the Holy Spirit speaking into his life. A powerful demonstration of what the Holy Spirit does in someone's life. And Luke says, I've got to tell these people about this. When I'm recording the Acts of the Apostles, I've got to tell them what the Holy Spirit has done in the life of Paul. There's more that Luke talks about concerning the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to look at that next week, put a line right there, put a little date right there, and we'll pick it up next Wednesday when we come back again. But as we do... Let's close in prayer tonight. Our Father and our God, we come before you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord God, as we look into this wonderful writing that Luke has left us. And Father God, just whetted all of our appetites to say, Holy Spirit, use us. Do something in our heart and our lives. Let us not hold back anything of ourselves personally. Let us have nothing in reserve. Let us give our all to you. And God, in so doing, Lord God, let's ask for everything that you have that you want to give to us. And God, use each and every person in this room tonight. Use all of us, Lord, as we open our hearts and say, yes, Holy Spirit, fill our lives. God, use us to do things that we cannot do. Use us, Lord God, to be instruments for your glory that appoint all men to Christ Jesus that will truly be empowered to witness in this life. May your hand of blessing be upon us. Keep us in health. Keep us in safety. Keep us in security. May we earn our livings this week. May we provide, Lord God, food for our table, clothing, shelter, and strength. May your blessings be upon us. Most of all, Lord, give us someone that we can speak to and tell them about the love of God and the love of Christ in our lives. So Jesus Thank you for listening to this faith-filled message. Please connect with us at our website, gospeltabernaclechurch.com, so we can continue to be a part of your faith walk. 
And if you're listening today and you've never made Jesus Lord of your life, now is the time to do that. Now, today, is the day of salvation. Pray this prayer with me. Dear Father, I believe you sent your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to die for my sins on the cross. And you have raised him from the dead that I might be alive in him. Jesus, I confess you are Lord of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, welcome. You're now in the family of God. You're a child of God. Connect with us. Let us know if you prayed that prayer. We want to be right there alongside you as you walk out this journey of faith in Christ. God bless you. 